Hello and welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. This week, I want to talk about laughter. And as a comedy writer, as a playwright, this is what you want to hear. Now, what I'm about to play you is from a performance of my play, America's Sexiest Couple, that was performed at the Riverfront Theater in Aurora, Illinois, earlier this year. baby that was actual laughter and like i said as a playwright it's what you want to hear because sometimes everything will be going right and not only do your jokes get laughs but straight lines get laughs and looks and reactions get laughs and people pouring a cup of coffee gets laughs it just takes you into a different stratosphere and it is comedy nirvana. But I want to talk about laughter because it's so elusive. It's so difficult. And as a comedy writer, you know, I kind of make it my business to try to study laughter. And of course, all I've really learned is it's elusive. But I've also learned along the way some of the factors that relate to why something elicits a laugh or why it doesn't. So first, let me talk about laughter itself and why it is so valuable, so valuable to you. Because laughter enhances our mental health. It improves our mood. It relieves feelings of anger and frustration. It helps reduce tension. Laughter also increases our energy, inspires hope, and adds joy to our life. Wow. What else can do that? It it increases endorphins. And laughter also increases your intake of oxygen-rich air and blood flow and circulation, which can improve your brain health as well. Here's an interesting little tidbit I didn't know. A good laugh can leave your muscles relaxed for up to 45 minutes. It decreases uh, stress hormones and increases immune cells and infection-fighting antibodies, thus improving your resistance to disease. All of this with a good laugh. And in some respects, laughter can be just as beneficial for you as exercise. I cling to that. (laughs) New research suggests that people who laugh together like each other more. Victor Borga once said, laughter is the closest distance between two people. So, like I say, comedy writers study laughter. It really is the validation of our work. But to be honest, when I say we study laughter, it's not so that we can write an academic paper on it. It's to try to hedge our bet 
against why things don't work. It's not so much why did something get a laugh as much as why didn't something get a laugh. Okay, so let's go through some of them. Number one, people have to be in the right mood to laugh. You know the expression, too soon? Well, give you an example. When uh, my partner David Isaacs and I were doing that show for Mary Tyler Moore, it was set in a tabloid newspaper. And we were set to film an episode the night that the Challenger exploded. And so there was a lot of discussion during the day, should we cancel or should we just keep going with the rationale being uh, people have been inundated with this horrible news all day, they're going to want an escape, it'll be a chance for them to laugh. We basically talked ourselves into that because had we canceled, it would have cost the show a lot of money. So we decided to do the show. Death, okay, death, and and it was actually a pretty funny show, at least it was up until the audience came in, and about midway through the show, I noticed, as I mentioned, a good portion of the show was set in a newsroom, and there were photos around the newsroom of basic news events, and one of the photos was you guessed it, the Challenger. <laughs> okay, so 200 people come in and they're just looking at it. Needless to say, the show did not get an awful lot of laughs. So yes, at times it can be an escape and it can be a way to lighten your mood and other times it's just too soon. Here's the thing, if you've ever been to the David Letterman show, and I think Steve Colbert has continued this tradition, you will notice that the auditorium is a meat locker. That's right, it is cold, and Dave kept the temperature at like 60 degrees. And the reason is that if the room is too warm you tend to laugh less. Why? Because you're kind of cozy and you sort of get a little loggy and, and sleepy and you're just not as sharp. You're just not as focused as you would be if the temperature is colder. The time of the week is also a factor. When Again, my partner David Isaacs and I did a series of one-act plays. This was back in 1980, and we did this as an exercise to do four one-act plays in different comic styles. And we had an umbrella theme, which was Los Angeles, and we rehearsed this, and we opened on a Friday night. And the show is getting really good laughs all the way through. And the final act was a farce, just a wild doors slamming and people running in and out. It was a legitimate farce. People were laughing and laughing and laughing. And with about 20 minutes to go, they just stopped. 
and it was silent for the rest of the play. And David and I looked at each other and like, where do we go wrong? How did this thing go off the rails? Because everybody was having a really great time. And all of a sudden, death. Well, we weren't expecting it. So we said to the cast, look, we're not going to do any rewriting, but we are going to really pay attention tomorrow night and see just where we went wrong. So we had an audience on Saturday night laughing from the beginning and laughing all the way through and we get to act four and we're holding our breath and they're laughing and laughing and laughing and they get to that spot and they continue to laugh and they continue to laugh and they laugh all the way till the end. We thought, all right, we just had a bad audience that Friday, but obviously it works. And the next Friday, we brought in another audience, and wouldn't you know, at pretty much that same spot, they stopped laughing. And the last 15 minutes were, you know, crickets. And again, we're like, what the hell is going on? Saturday night, they laughed all the way through to the very end. And what we realized was they're tired on Friday night. They've been working all week and they're laughing and laughing and laughing and they just kind of reached a point where they were pooped and they were done laughing. On Saturday, they're more relaxed. They've had a chance to unwind a little bit and they're able to laugh all the way through. Now, this proved to be very helpful for us when we were doing multi-camera television shows. Because when you do a multi-camera show, which is a show shot in front of a live studio audience, it's a five-day schedule, and you either go Monday to Friday and film on Friday night, or you start on Wednesday and you film on Tuesday night. We always filmed on Tuesday night because we figured we would get better audiences, which we did. Because on Friday nights, audiences come and they're having a good time and they're at a television show and it's great. And it's like now nine o'clock, it's like, I don't care. <laughs> just, just get me home. <laughs> I'm, I'm pooped. But we had much better audiences on Tuesday night. So that is certainly a factor. Stand-up comedians will tell you alcohol level is also a factor. And it's why they serve lots and lots of alcohol in comedy clubs. Expectations. If you go to a Neil Simon play, you figure it's going to be funny, and so you are more prone to laugh. People don't realize, but when Neil Simon had his first play on Broadway, it was 1960, and it was a play called Come Blow Your Horn. It was a pretty funny play, but it was playing meh. You know, audiences were laughing at some things, and it was not like a huge, rousing hit. And it was close to being, being shut down. And Groucho Marx went to see it one night, and Groucho Marx thought it was hilarious, whether the audience laughed or not. And he told one of those uh, reporters, like Walter Winchell, that had a 
column. It was read by tons and tons of people saying, oh, my God, you got to go see this play. This play is really funny. And so people, taking Groucho's word for it, were curious, and they bought tickets, and all of a sudden, the laughter level went way up because Groucho Marx said it was funny and they had expectations that it was going to be funny. And so it suddenly became a big hit. And by the time he did Barefoot in the Park and The Odd Couple, like I said, audiences were ready to just come in and laugh. And it's why if you are a playwright, and and I face this with my plays, which are comedies, that there's a lot of theaters that are reluctant to put a brand new comedy on their schedule because the audience doesn't know them, okay? So uh, if they're going to see a comedy by Ken Levine, it's like, who's that clown? Uh, You know, uh, I don't know if this is going to be funny or not. It says it's funny, but I I don't know. But if they see it's uh, the odd couple, like, yeah, okay, that's a comedy. We'll go see that. So it's something that... Uh, playwrights, especially comedy playwrights, and there are not that many of us anymore, uh, have to face. Then there is the structure of a joke. I like to say there are three parts to a joke. The information, the setup, and the punchline. And each of those three are crucial. So information. If I do a joke about taxi cabs in Kalamazoo, you're going to laugh if you're in Kalamazoo. But if I do that same joke in Key Largo, they're going to look at me like I'm an idiot, okay? The audience has to have the information, and then the setup and the punchline have to work. And again, that's a different discussion on what makes a good setup and what makes a good punchline. The delivery is also very important. And and this is something that I can't stress enough to actors. The audience has to hear you. You have to have good diction and you have to project and the audience has to hear you. Because if you start mumbling, then you can say the funniest things in the world, but if they don't hear you, then you're not going to get laughs. Are the laughs genuine? Are you getting laughs from relatives? And one thing that is just so sad, when you're on staff of a multi-camera show and you go down to run-throughs, and the run-throughs sometimes are great, oftentimes are hit and miss, and there's work to be done. And you generally try to laugh if something works or you are delighted by something that the actor does. But every so often, the stuff won't work. But the writer of that episode is laughing hysterically. (laughs) it's just it's just so pathetic so uh watch out for that the other thing is 
people will laugh and situation comedies just to move on. Here's what I mean by that. There are some producers who like the idea of doing a scene in front of the audience and then giving actors alternate jokes. The expression is alt. Like maybe this joke will be funnier. Maybe this joke will be funnier. And so they do the scene again with the new joke. And then they'll do the scene again a third time and maybe a fourth time. And by the third or fourth time the audience has seen that scene, they're, they're pretty well exhausted. And they start figuring out what the producers are doing and they'll laugh hysterically at the alts just so they'll move on. So watch out for that. Context. Ever go to a heavy drama? I mean, a, an Arthur Miller play? And there'll be just like a moment of lightness. <laughs> Just a, a sliver of lightness. Somebody saying something that's just mildly amusing and it gets a big laugh because it just breaks the tension. And so you get a big laugh, but you go, if that same line was in a Neil Simon play, crickets. But the context will sometimes get you some laughs. And, of course, there's your sensibility. You know, it's something that someone finds hilarious, you might find offensive, especially now in this woke environment that we live in. You know, comics have an expression, know your room. And I was once talking to Louis Black, and he was saying that he was booked to be the opening act for Ray Charles, needless to say, <laughs> when Lewis Black got out there, the audience just booed him off the stage. This was not the Lewis Black crowd. Comedy can reflect society, so it doesn't always age well. I think of the Woody Allen movie Manhattan, which at the time it came out was highly praised, and you look at it now and the idea of a middle-aged guy who is going out with a, a teenager still in high school is downright creepy. And I also think if you take a, a Gen Zer, if that's what you call them, Gen Zers, and you play them a Steve Martin comedy album, now, if you are of a certain age, Steve Martin, who had that very tongue-in-cheek act, was hilarious. But if somebody who's not really into that listens to Steve Martin and hears, I'm a wild and crazy guy... And the audience just explodes in laughter. They're going to go, what the hell are they laughing at? It's time to get small. Like, 
why are these people in convulsions over that? Imagine making blazing saddles today. Well, one thing that proves to be true is communal laughter is the best, okay? You do get more pleasure watching a comedy if you are with an audience that is also laughing. When it is a shared experience, uh, it is better. And here's where it gets very tricky because audiences vary. For a year, the first year of Cheers, I did the warm-up, and I had like a four or five minute opening, which is basically a comedy routine where I was giving instructions of what's going to happen, and I had a lot of jokes sprinkled in. And I could tell from the audience reaction to my five-minute intro whether or not this was going to be a rockin' good time or we had a bunch of stiffs in the crowd. And I would go to the actors before we would begin, and I would say, okay, you're going to have a good time tonight. They're a really hot crowd. Or I would say, you got a dull crowd tonight. It's not you. It's not the material. Just hang in there and and do it. Remember, this is for television. But, uh, yeah, you just, you never know with with crowds. And to me, the big X factor, and I'm thinking theater now, is Sunday matinees. I have gone to Sunday matinees that have just been atrocious. And I've gone to Sunday matinees that have been the best audiences of the entire run. And you just never know on Sunday afternoon matinees. When I had, actually it was my very first produced play. It's called Air B, and it was at the Falcon Theater, now called the Gary Marshall Theater, uh, back about 10 years ago or so. And we had previews. We had a week of previews, and then the show was going to be performed for a month. And the first preview was on a Wednesday night. Now, usually preview audiences, especially theaters that take subscriptions, uh, previews are always cheaper, especially in the middle of the week. And so for the first preview, we had probably 70 people in the theater. The theater, I think, sat 120. We had about 70 no one was under 90 years old. I mean, there were oxygen tanks and tubes coming out of nostrils and walkers. Like I said, no one was under 90. So our cast goes on stage and the play begins. Death. Absolute stone silence death. And in intermission, I went back to the cast and I said, the problem is you're not holding for laughs. And they laughed and they said, look, we looked out at the audience. We saw who they were. We're just treating it as a run through. Don't worry about it. And the second act, same thing, 70 stone faced people. When it was over, the theater manager who was closing up 
said to me, you got a hit on your hands. And I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> they hated it. Nobody laughed. He goes, no, no, no. This crowd, they all came back for act two. When they don't like something, there is a mass exodus at intermission. The fact that nobody left, they loved your play. And sure enough, when we got audiences in there that uh, were alive, uh, it did, in fact, get its laughs. Uh, holding for laughs, um, I should mention something about that. And, and it's what I always say to actors, why it is so important to hold for laughs. Because when you hold for laughs, the audience feels, okay, I get the joke. I'm not missing anything. When the actors race through and start their next line while the audience is laughing, the audience starts to go, well, I'm missing something, so I better stop laughing so that I don't miss anything. And they stop laughing. It's, it's, it's really amazing, you know? Yes, something is really funny, but if they're afraid they're going to miss something, they, they won't laugh. I had a play, this was at uh, a 10-minute play festival in Hollywood called the Short and Sweet Festival, and it was at the Stellar Adler Theater in Hollywood, and there were several theaters in this upstairs complex on Hollywood Boulevard. Our play, actually it was just my play, <laughs> I'm used to saying our because me and my partner, it was my play, let off the night. And it got big laughs the first night. It just did great. And then the second night, the director of the program had her little introductory speech. And she said, last night, we got complaints from the other theater that there was too much laughter going on here. So uh, if you guys could, like, not make as much noise, and if you go out to the lobby for intermission, uh, please, could you, like, keep it down? You can bring your food back into the theater as we try to keep things quiet. And I thought to myself, oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. My play is going to die. And sure enough, not a laugh. Not a chuckle, nothing. Yeah. The audience was told, don't laugh. They won't. And finally, there is a comedy truism. No joke is bulletproof. You think you've got the funniest joke in the world that even a bad actor is going to get a laugh. Even if the air conditioning is out you're going to get a laugh. Even if they're sitting in the back row and the actor mumbles it, it's going to get a laugh for you. That is not true. And I was talking to one of the producers of The Play That Goes Wrong, which I saw in New York. And if you ever get a chance to see it, to see a good production of it, it's hilarious. The timing, everything, it is just so funny. It is wall-to-wall -wall 
huge laugh. You won't have to exercise for six weeks if you go to see a good production of the play that goes wrong. And so I was saying to the producer, well, God, that must just be (laughs) as close to bulletproof as possible. You just must kill night after night. And he goes, most nights we do, but every so often we'll have a night where the actors are just a little off, the timing is just off, and for whatever reason, the audience doesn't laugh. And you go, wow, if that play doesn't work, then nothing is bulletproof. And that is my screed on laughter this week. If you have any thoughts on the matter, you are... Uh, Welcome to email me, hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That's hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. I'm also available on uh, no longer Twitter, no longer X, but I am available on Instagram where I showcase my New Yorker cartoons. So uh, thank you so much for listening. Also, thanks to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, Howard Hoffman, John Wolfert, Bruce and Jason Miller. And we will see you once again next week. Here on Hollywood and the Fine.